You know, yesterday our nation marked the 20th anniversary of the terrorist attacks on American soil, September the 11th, 2001. Nearly 3,000 Americans and others were mercilessly murdered in such a heinous way. And I know if you were alive, you remember where you were on that day. I was here. Uh, it was early that morning. I was in my office doing some work. We had some ladies who were volunteering to do some administrative work down in our conference room. And so I decided I would walk down the hallway and say good morning to them. And when I walked in the room, I noticed they had rolled in a television on a stand and they, they had the news on. And they said, Pastor, have you seen this? And I said, what are you talking about? They said, a plane has hit one of the towers of the World Trade Center. And hardly, no sooner than they said that, and I looked at the screen, did we then see the second plane uh, crash into, no, not crash, fly into the second tower. And of course, I can't describe that, that feeling in that moment of disbelief, just absolute disbelief of what we were seeing. And then the horror when it started sinking in what was happening and the lives that were being impacted. Uh, we prayed in that room and we cried in that room and then uh, we got our staff together and we said, what are we going to do? And one of the things that we did is we started calling every military family connected with our church because we knew that uh, Mayport Naval Station had been locked down. And if you were off base, you weren't getting back on very soon. And we thought there could be some moms and some families or some spouses who were concerned about what was going on. So we started calling them, checking on them. What can we do? How can we help you? We had a time where we canceled everything that we had planned for the rest of the day. And we prayed and called and checked on people. We canceled visitation that we had that night where we'd go out and visit people around in our community or first-time guests in our church. Canceled that. And then we started having prayer meetings. And I don't know if you remember, but church attendance really rose during those days after the terrorist attacks of 9-11. Churches were filled with people seeking God and praying for the victims. And in those moments, I think it sunk in for many of us that we live in perilous times. We live in dangerous days. And it shook any sense of stability that you felt you had at that moment where you realized that you are vulnerable, no matter where you are, evil can reach you. And I don't say that to even today scare you, but we still recognize, don't we, that we live in dangerous days. We live in perilous times. The Bible warned us that in the last days, perilous times would come. So whether it is violence or viruses, we live in dangerous days. Whether it's terrorism or the traffic around Jacksonville, we live in dangerous days. Whether it's murder or mayhem, we live in dangerous days. Whether it is sickness or the sin that abuses other people, we live in dangerous days. And let's be honest, in those moments we can sometimes wonder what does it mean to live by faith in God when it just doesn't make sense why he would allow bad things to happen. Sometimes we struggle to know how to live by faith in God and trust God when it's hard to figure out what he's up to and how we can see the 
puzzle pieces coming together. I, maybe it's just me, but that's, that's my struggle at times. Maybe there's someone else that could relate to that. That living by faith is easy on a beautiful Sunday morning when life is good. When there's finances in the bank, when your health is good, whenever your family is doing really well, when the kids are all behaving. It's easy to live by faith in those moments, but where faith is put to the test is not in the good times, but in the bad times, in the difficult days. That's where our faith is put to the test. And what I want to talk to you today about as we continue in this new study in the book of Exodus from the Old Testament is what does it mean to live by faith in fearful times? What does it mean to live by faith in God in fearful and dangerous and perilous times? And we're going to go today to Exodus chapter 2. And we're just going to look at the first 10 verses today. But in Exodus chapter 2, we see the answer to the question, what does it look like to live by faith in fearful times? What does it look like to trust God when you can't make sense of why He allows bad things to happen? What does it look like to live by faith in God when sometimes it may seem that God's not even at work. You just can't see his hand at work. Maybe today's message is not just something from a history lesson. Maybe it's a lesson for me and for you today in these perilous times in which we live. You see, we're not the first to live in perilous times. If you were here last week, we, we started this study by looking at how the Hebrew people ended up in the pagan nation of Egypt. They ended up there hundreds of years earlier, just a band of 70 Hebrews, just a family. And they were there rescued by God from famine that had swept the Middle East. And by God's sovereign grace, Egypt had become the breadbasket of the world. And because of the intervention of God in this family, God saved the Hebrew people, but hundreds of years have passed by and they're still in Egypt and they're multiplying. And now there's not just 70 of them. Most Bible scholars tell us there are about 2 million of them now living in Egypt by the time we get to the book of Exodus and their eventual departure from Egypt. But seasons change and politics change and there's a new pharaoh over Egypt who doesn't care one bit about the history of how the Hebrew people were used by God to save Egypt and to save the world. As a matter of fact, he sees them as a threat to his power and he sets out on an agenda to wipe them out. He, he issues a command to all the Hebrew midwives if a baby girl is born to one of these Jews, then you let her live. But if a baby boy is born, you kill him. He didn't want those boys growing up and eventually perhaps going to war against Egypt. And he also wanted to stamp out them. And so let's kill all the boys so they can't reproduce and they can't be a threat to us. But the Hebrew midwives feared God. And they did the next right thing, which for them was to disobey Pharaoh's command, even at great peril to their own lives. He calls them in. Why didn't you do what I said? And they told a, a white lie. They said, these Hebrew women, man, they're stronger than the Egyptian women. They've already had that baby before we can get there to help them. Wasn't the whole truth. And so then Pharaoh decides if that didn't work, he'd come up with a new scheme. Not only does he put them in slavery, but he says to all the Egyptians, if any of you see a Hebrew baby boy, throw that baby in the Nile River and drown him. 
And that's where we pick up here in Exodus chapter 2. Imagine that you were a, a Jewish person living in Egypt and things have gone from you being favored to now you being threatened for your very lives, treated as slaves, and your own infants in peril. What happened? Well, look at Exodus chapter 2 beginning with verse 1. It says, Now a man from the house of Levi, Levi was one of the, the uh, sons of Jacob, so one of the, uh, from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman, uh, by the way, there's a lot there that we can unpack. God was setting the stage for how this eventual deliverer that he's going to send to rescue the Hebrew people out of Egyptian bondage is going to come from the right family to lead the people into worship. So, so there's a whole sermon there that we could preach about that. But there's one thing I just want to point out, though, instead. Do you notice something, even in perilous times, these Jewish people just kept doing what they do. They kept living life every day. They get married and they start a family. You say, boy, this is a terrible time to start a family. Don't you understand that there, there is a, a, an edict from Pharaoh that if you have a baby boy, he's going to be murdered. This is the worst time to start a family. But they started a family anyway. A man and a woman meet and fall in love, and they start a family. And I love that. And the Bible says in verse 2, the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Just like many of your great-grandparents met during the Great Depression, and they fell in love, and they got married anyway. They didn't know how they were going to put food on the table. They didn't know how they were going to make ends meet but they did the right thing anyway. Just like some of you, before you shipped off to war or for your deployment, you got married. Other people say, this is the worst time to get married. You're going to be separated for six months or for who knows how long, and yet you did the right thing. You lived your life rather than allowing fear to dictate how you lived your life. You just lived by faith in God, getting up every day, just doing the right things, no matter what the devil intends against you. And the Bible says that she conceived and she bore a son. Uh-oh. If it was a daughter, no pressure. But a son. Where the whole Egyptian political machine is out to kill him. And she saw that he was a fine child. In some of your translations, it may read a beautiful child. It, it means that he was healthy and he was whole. It meant he had ten fingers and ten toes. And she knew, this mom knew that except for the death sentence placed on him by Pharaoh, there's no reason to believe this child won't thrive and grow and live. She sees his beauty. She sees his health. She sees his wholeness. And she decides she's going to hide him for three months, hide him from people finding out that they've had this baby because it would put his life in danger. Can you imagine how long those three months were for that mom trying to keep a baby quiet for three months? Doesn't work, does it? <laughs> you can try all you want. Babies cry for all kinds of reasons. They cry when they're hungry. They cry when they're sleepy. They cry when they're wet. They sometimes just cry. And you don't know why they're crying. 
But she hid him for three months. And what was she doing? She was living by faith in God rather than fear of Pharaoh. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, in your New Testament, the writer of Hebrews looks back on this story and he wrote, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Do you see what they're doing? They're living by faith in God. They're going to do the right thing no matter what. They're going to do the right thing and trust God no matter how hard it is, no matter how unpopular it is, no matter how dangerous it is. And they're going to have faith in God without a guarantee that this story is going to end well. They don't have the book of Exodus to know how this story is going to end. They're living moment by moment, day by day, just trusting God, not knowing if the next knock on their family door could be an official ready to murder their newborn baby. And yet they live by faith in God. I love that. There's a lesson there for us. Faith is not just for the good times. It's for the bad times. Look at verse 3, back in Exodus chapter 2, verse 3. It says, when she could hide him no longer. She took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. Basically, asphalt and pitch. She was making this basket waterproof. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. She takes this basket. Literally, the word is box. It's the same word, by the way. Basket is the same word used in the book of Genesis for the ark that Noah built. Just as Noah had an ark that rescued him and his family from the judgment of death, so this mom takes a basket. She takes a, a box of bulrushes and she weaves it and she works it and then she covers it and waterproofs it and she puts her baby in it. And then she takes that baby in that ark and she places him in the reeds there on the bank of the Nile River. I know in, in my childhood Sunday school years, the picture was always of baby Moses in his little basket just drifting down the middle of the Nile River. <laughs> That's the last thing this mom wants to happen to her baby. That basket floating down the Nile River is going to go north and end up in the Mediterranean Sea. That's not what she wanted. And that basket bobbing on the water of the Nile River could catch the attention of crocodiles. That's not what the mom wanted. What she's trying to do is rescue her child for one more day while she has to serve as a slave. So she puts him in the reeds where her family can keep an eye on him. And there we see verse 4. And his sister, first time we discover that this baby boy actually has an older sister. We'll discover in the book of Exodus later, he also has an older brother. But his sister stood at the distance to know what would be done to him. We don't know how old his sister was. She's evidently a young girl. She's, she's too young to have to be working in the fields as a slave. So she's got some free time to just hang out around the Nile River and not raise the suspicion of the Egyptian army. It's just another child playing. But she's old enough 
to be responsible to keep an eye on her baby brother. Most Bible scholars think she's somewhere between the ages of 6 years old and 12 years old. and She's keeping an eye on her baby brother to see what would be done to him, what would happen to him. Verse 5, now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. Oh, no. Anybody but her. Not Pharaoh's daughter. We're trying to hide this baby from Pharaoh and his officials. But now Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. So all of her attendants, all of her maidservants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. Verse 6, when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. What an amazing story. Actually, archaeologists have discovered near Goshen in Egypt a palace of the pharaohs. uh, There, close to the bank of the Nile River. And many Egyptian sources talk about how that the uh, women of Pharaoh's house would often bathe in the Nile rivers, thinking it's magical and thinking there's something spiritual about bathing here. And so there again, archaeology confirms what the scriptures are showing us happening here. But you know what's astounding is whenever Pharaoh's daughter opens this basket, she immediately recognizes this is a Hebrew baby boy. She knows the edict of her father that this child should be killed. But the Bible says she had pity on this child. She had compassion. In an Old Testament book that has very little good to say about the Egyptians, here we see a glimpse of even an Egyptian having pity on this little Hebrew baby. She was moved with compassion. And notice verse 7. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, remember she's standing by, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? I love that girl. Spunky little girl. Even at great danger to herself, she's not afraid to speak up to authority and to say, hey, I've got an idea. Why don't you let me run and find somebody to nurse that baby for you? And notice the response. Verse 8, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. She commands her, yeah, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, which is also her mother. But Pharaoh's daughter doesn't know any of this. And I love this, verse 9, And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, the mother, the child's mother, Take this child away. doesn't say take your child. She doesn't know that this is the mother of this child. She says to this Hebrew woman, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Do you see the irony of this? It's ironic that the very river that was to be the place of death for this little baby has become the place of life. It is ironic that this mother is now given her baby back with Pharaoh's protection and payment to care for her own child. 
You tell me God is not up there saying, angels, quit laughing so hard. I've got this under control. They're just, you know they're up there dying with laughter watching this. Pharaoh thinks he's in charge. Pharaoh thinks he is the potentate. Pharaoh thinks he is the supreme leader, but he has no clue. There is a God of heaven who is the one true living God, and he can take what others mean for evil, and he can bring good out of it. And so now, this baby's mother gets to feed her son, love on her son for the next few formative years of his life. And she gets the protection of Pharaoh's daughter, and she gets a paycheck for the privilege of caring for her child. Verse 10, when the child grew older, she, the mother, brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. Pharaoh's daughter adopted this baby as her own. And if you'll notice something, no one has been named yet in chapter 2 until we get here to verse 10. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. That's what the Hebrew name means, to draw out. There's also a play on words. There's an Egyptian word that sounds very similar. It means to be born. And yet there again, God takes the irony of an Egyptian woman naming him Moses, not recognizing that this child she's just adopted will be the downfall of her own father. An Israelite child who was supposed to have been executed under royal orders, is now being adopted and raised in an Egyptian pharaoh's home. We read in the book of Acts chapter 7 that Moses is given the premier education that Egypt had to offer him. And some people look at this and they say, is this really reasonable to believe that Pharaoh would allow this Hebrew baby boy to be adopted by his daughter, raised in his own home, and educated? Absolutely. Secular historians are replete with examples of how Egyptian pharaohs would take young boys from other cultures, bring them as slaves, train them, raise them up in the ways of Egypt so that they could then be representatives for Egypt back home in their own culture. This was Pharaoh's way of saying, you know what? All the others I'm going to kill, but this one I'll destroy by converting him from Hebrew to Egyptian. We'll make him thoroughly one of ours, and we will use him for our own kingdom agenda. That was why he allowed this to happen. But God is a subversive God. He's working behind the scenes, and he has just placed the future deliverer of the Hebrew people in the very palace of Pharaoh. And so what does it mean to live by faith in fearful times? What's the message for us today in these times? Well, the intricacy of God's working in our world can sometimes be imperceptible. It's hard for us to see how God is at work and to see how all the pieces of the puzzle fit together. It was the great Preacher and pastor Charles Haddon Spurgeon of the 1800s and the Metropolitan Tabernacle of London 
who once said to his congregation, when you cannot trace God's hand, just trust his heart. God is at work. Even if you can't see it, even if you don't understand it, even if you can't figure it out on your own, when those things that come into your life that seem to be bigger than you, that are going to crush you, that will defeat you, that have the power and potential to even destroy you, keep your faith in God because He is still at work even when you don't understand it, even when you can't figure it out. So here's the bottom line of this passage for us today. Faith because we're talking about how to live by faith in fearful times, faith is doing what you can do while trusting God to do what only He can do. Faith is doing what you can while trusting God to do what only He can. I love how that God used three women to deliver Moses. Literally one woman. <laughs> and, and his mom. Some of you will get that on the way home. But three women to deliver Moses in life and from death. He used his mom, who was living by faith just every day, doing the right thing for this day, trusting God in this moment. God used his little his big sister. We learn her name later is Miriam. God used that little girl to be brave and courageous to keep an eye on her baby brother, to stand up to Pharaoh's daughter and offer a solution. And she became a part of a big story that God was writing that she could have had no clue for. And yes, God even used Pharaoh's daughter to adopt baby Moses, to bring him in, to protect him, to raise him, and to give him a foundation that God would sovereignly use in the future to be a mediator between a pagan land of Egypt and the promised land that God had given his people. You know what faith is? <laughs> Among many other things, faith is doing what you can while trusting God to do what only he can. Some of you are going through some difficult times. Grief has brought you low. I deal with you every day and you amaze me. You get up every day and you put one foot in front of the other. You know what I see in you? You're living by faith. Doing what you can while trusting God to do what only He can. God only you can help me, comfort me, guide me, protect me, get me through this time. I see you living by faith. Some of you showed up this morning or you tuned in today knowing that you're going to get the hostility of an unbelieving spouse who's going to berate you for your faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, you're going to that church again? Those bunch of hypocrites? All they want is your money? You're going to hear it. But here you are, living by faith, doing what you can, while trusting God to do what only He can. Only God can change another person's heart. But you're going to keep doing what you're doing. Some of you widows lived on fixed incomes. And while I don't know who gives and how much people give in this church, here's what I know. I'm told by our financial secretary, Pastor, if you knew, you would be amazed at the faithful, consistent generosity of some of our senior adults and widows. They're always faithful. No one would blame them if they couldn't give. And maybe they don't, they're not able to give what they used to give. 
but they're still bought in to what God is doing through the church. You know what I see in you? I see in you a person living by faith, doing what you can while trusting God to do what only he can. For some of you, you're facing some pretty scary health issues. The doctors have told you, we don't know if there's anything else we can do. But you're living by faith. You're doing what you can. You're getting that second opinion. You're doing the best you can to care for yourself physically. But you're also trusting God to do what only He can do. Bring healing in your life, and your body. And some of you recognize that no matter what, no matter what the outcome is, whether you live or die, you've made up your mind, like the Apostle Paul, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Someone told me just last week, Pastor, I don't know how many more days I've got, but I can tell you this, I want to live those days for Jesus. And then he said to me, Why be worried? I can't lose. And that was the verse he quoted to me. To live as Christ. To die is gain. So even if I die, I get to be with Jesus. And one day he comes back and I get a new body that will never be sick and will never die. Friend, I don't know what it means for you to live by faith in fearful times. But I believe God would have you today Understand that living by faith is doing what you can. Get up and go to work. Get up and go to school. Get up and be a good neighbor. Get up and love the stranger. Get up and care for the immigrant. Get up every day and and live for Jesus and tell someone else about Jesus and the good news of Christ. Get up every day and just do the right thing for your family. Get up every day and live by faith. And you're not going to give up your hope in Him no matter how hard it is. You're just going to get up every day and do what you can. And you're going to trust God to do what only He can. That He is at work. He is bringing deliverance. He is bringing victory. And we're going to see it one day. And we will praise Him for writing us in to His story. Because we chose to live by faith. If you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, let this be the day for you. Turn from your sin. Believe in Jesus. Somebody asked me last week, why are we studying the book of Exodus? That's Old Testament. (laughs) It's a good question. How do you think we got to the New Testament? Through this deliverer, Moses, through the Hebrew people being saved out of Egypt, being saved down through the centuries, There will come another one born to this family. His name was Yeshua, Jesus of Nazareth. And he's the ultimate deliverer. He's the ultimate savior. And he came, unlike Moses, to be delivered from death. He came to actually die our death on the cross of Calvary. And to rise from the dead... To give you the gift of eternal life. That's why we're preaching through the book of Exodus. Is we're going to keep our eyes on Jesus. Sometimes we get the mistaken notion that we read chapter 2. Oh, the hero of that story must be the mother, uh, Jochebed. It must be the the older sister of Moses, uh, Miriam. It must be Pharaoh's daughter. We don't know her name. No. 
I'm, I'm happy for all of those people who lived by faith and did the right thing. But the hero of this chapter and every chapter is God himself who brings Jesus into this world. And if you've never received him as your Lord and Savior, do it today. I want to lead us into prayer. Maybe today you'll talk to God and settle the matter of your eternal destiny by putting your faith in Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. For the rest of us who have already done that, let us today renew our commitment to live by faith, which means every day we're going to get up and do what we can, and we're going to trust God to do what only He can. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank You for this reminder to me. Maybe I've wasted everybody's time, but I have needed this reminder that living by faith is doing what you can while trusting You, God, to do what only You can. So God, thank you for this reminder today. Thank you for encouraging our hearts and renewing our hope and our commitment and our steadfastness, even when life is difficult and dangerous, that we keep living by faith. Father, I pray if there's anyone in this room right now, anyone watching online right now who needs Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that today they would turn to him and say, Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you're God's son. Thank you for living a perfect life where I've lived a sinful life. Thank you for dying for me on the cross and exchanging your perfect life for my sinful life. And thank you that not only did you die, but you rose from the dead. And because of that, you hear me when I pray. And today I ask you, forgive me of my sin. Be my Lord and Savior. Come into my life. I receive you by faith. And now help me not to be ashamed of you, but help me to live for you. Uh, every day doing what I can for you and trusting you to do what only you can. Heavenly Father, have your perfect will and way in all of our lives as we take a next step in our spiritual journey with you to trust Jesus as Savior, to follow Jesus in believer's baptism, to connect with a local church like this one, to, to be more committed to prayer and the reading of your word and just getting up every day living by faith, doing what we can while trusting you to do what only you can. And thank you that you're a trustworthy God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.